You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Episode number 18 of that one time on tour is brought to you by the band You Over Me. You Over Me is a pop punk alternative rock band that includes members from Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Australia. They are currently working on their debut EP titled Beginnings. If you want to check out You Over Me, go on over to Instagram at You Over Me Official, Twitter at You Over Me Band, and Facebook forward slash You Over Me Official. Now here it is, their brand new single, Never Back Down. Be 
Hello and welcome to episode number 18 of that one time on tour. As always, I'm your host, Chris Swinney. Uh, Thanks for coming back week in and week out. Last week was huge. Uh, I'd like to thank my guest, Christopher Rowe from the Ataris, good friend of mine and old bandmate for coming on the show. You guys liked it. We had so many downloads. It was crazy. I hope that some of you guys, it was your first time listening. You're actually sticking around. You subscribe. There's a lot of other really good episodes to check out as well. Uh, Before we get on to today's episode, I do need to tell you about a brand new sponsor to the show, Muncie Music Center. Now, Muncie Music Center is near and dear to my heart because I actually teach there. I teach guitar, ukulele, mandolin, bass, banjo. Uh, I teach everything there. So Muncie Music Center came on board uh, because I have some really top secret, cool live interviews coming up and I needed some gear. So they hooked me up with some gear and I'm going to repay the love by talking about them on the show. They're a wonderful store right here in downtown Muncie, Indiana. So if you're local, you need to shop there. Uh, They have everything that you could ever want as far as guitars and accessories and basses, and and they have trombones. They have everything. So uh, you want to check out Muncie Music Center, you need to go in person, 600 South Mulberry Street in Muncie, Indiana. Uh, You can give them a call at 1-800-992-4481, or you can also hit them up at sales at munciemusic.com. They're an awesome place. They just opened up a new studio, so if you got a band and you want to record, go to Muncie Music Center, hit them up. They are an amazing store. And if you need lessons, that's where I teach, so hit me up too. I also need to tell you about rockabilia.com. They are still on board. They're an amazing sponsor. They sent me some great shirts. I have a minor threat shirt I've wanted forever, Uh, a propagandi shirt, which is hard to find anywhere, you know, and uh, they're just a great place. They have over 500,000 unique items officially licensed by the bands. Make sure to go to rockabilia.com and at checkout, put in the promo code P-C-T-O-T-O-T to save yourself 15% off of your entire order. Uh, And uh, that's about it. Make sure that you're following us on all of the social media platforms. It's at T-O-T-O-T podcast. If you want to get in touch, become a sponsor, whatever, it's T-O-T-O-T podcast at gmail.com. You can leave us some love or some hate on the T-O-T-O-T hotline. That is 1-765-372-8818. So here we go. We're going to jump right into my conversation with this week's guest, Mr. Charlie Polson from Goldfinger and Black President. I had a wonderful time talking to Charlie. Uh, we actually figured out that we had met or played some shows together at one point. Uh, we had a really good time. This is one of my favorite episodes that I've done. So without further ado, I'm going to jump right into it. This is my conversation with Mr. Charlie Polson from Goldfinger and Black President. Hey, Charlie, what's going on, man? Uh, I'm... I'm fucking sweaty. It's hot <laughs> as fuck here. I heard it's been really hot out there in California. Is it, the heat wave? The heat wave is still on. I take it. Yeah, it's insane. Uh, <laughs> my dogs are just laying on the ground, staring at me. <laughs> like it's my fault somehow. Like I have control of this. How many dogs do you have, man? Uh, five. Five dogs. Wow, that's 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 really cool. <laughs> so, uh, what what part of uh, are you in LA? Is that where you're at? Yeah. Okay, that's cool. I live in a little neighborhood called Frogtown. It's just north of Chinatown. It's right on the LA. It's right between the river and uh, Dodger Stadium. Okay, I've been out to LA a lot. I don't know the neighborhoods very well, but uh, sounds like a nice place, <laughs> close to Dodger Stadium. 
Uh, it's all right. It's currently uh, it's currently getting gentrified because everything is moving east. Yeah. And uh, I've lived in this neighborhood for about eight years, and it definitely looks different than it used to. And the uh, the local crew, um, uh, I'll call them a youth organization. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they uh, they are not taking to the gentrification too well, and so there's been a uh, an uptick in cars getting lit on fire wow. and uh, and gunshots and shit in my neighborhood lately. That's crazy, man. Well, stay safe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what? They don't really fuck with me um, because I don't fuck with them. Yeah, you know yeah. What I mean, like I when I get home late at night, I take my dogs for a walk on the river, and I see them out there, and you know, it's just like a head nod, like "What's up?" And they know I don't, you know, I'm not fucking with them, and vice versa. So, did you uh, did you grow up on the West Coast? Is that where you're from originally? Yeah. But uh, when I was three, my uh, my parents had some static, and my dad just packed me up in the middle of the night and uh, and took off. Didn't tell my mom where we were going, and then so we started bouncing from state to state. I've lived in, I think, nine different states in my life, but it was always L.A. We'd always come back here. Okay. What uh, When you were growing up, um, what kind of got you into music? This My podcast is, is a lot about touring and whatnot, but I always like to ask my guests, like, the first time you really thought that music was something you were going to be interested in and passionate about, what was that for you? Uh, Kiss. Kiss, okay. Uh, namely, Ace Freely. Awesome. Yeah. Um, when I was a little kid, I discovered Kiss when I was probably seven. Okay. Uh, I had a babysitter. Yes! <laughs> I had a babysitter come over uh, with uh, Destroyer and Kiss Love Gun. And awesome. at the time, I was heavy into uh, comic books. And uh, and here's these dudes that look like they were out of a comic book. And uh, and I was always raised with records in my house. Like, my dad was always playing Hendrix and Johnny Cash and Sly and the Family Stone and shit like that. So, you know, it was sort of both you know it was the best it was like these guys that that were superheroes and they made records you know so i was in so did you start with the guitar then or was that like the like because you said ace freely you mentioned him and he's the guitarist did that like right away get you wanting to play an instrument yeah yeah um uh I remember i was walking home from elementary school one day i think i was in sixth grade so that makes you what 11 yeah yeah some 11 or 12 yeah and i'm walking home and there's this dude sitting on his front porch with this crazy mop of hair and he had his marshall half stack pointed out of his bedroom window awesome. and he had run a cable from his bedroom out to his front porch and he was just sitting on the front porch fucking shredding <laughs> and i literally just stood on the sidewalk and watched him for a while and he stopped playing he's like what's up little man <laughs> so I walked up to him, we started talking and, and I asked him if he would give me guitar lessons and he's like, yeah, totally come over whenever, but I didn't have a guitar. Yeah. So I stole a guitar from the neighborhood bully cause he was an asshole and I didn't feel bad about it. <laughs> yeah. And and I started taking, and I started taking lessons. <clears throat> That's awesome, man. So did he, yeah. I mean, I, I teach guitar for a living now that I'm no longer on the road. Uh, did mm-hmm. he start you with like theory and stuff like that? Or was it pretty much just trying to play songs you liked with chords? No or? songs. Uh, and I do, when I teach people, I do the same thing. Like I, especially if they're, if they're brand new, then I, um, I start with, uh, 
because I want it to be fun for them. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? So I start teaching them, you know, shit they dig. You know, I want them to have a reason to pick up the guitar. If I start with scales and, you know, uh, fundamentals and shit, then, the, you know, they're not going to, you know. The, the thing is, I want them to, like, just develop a relationship with the guitar. Yeah. And then, you know, then they're going to want to start unlocking the mysteries. Do you know what I mean? Well, man, I was, when I started teaching, I was, you know, I tried to do it the way that I, I learned in college. And I was like, theory, 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 and fundamentals. And then I realized I was losing students left and right. So now I tailor it kind of like you do to what they like. If a kid likes Metallica, we do Metallica. If a kid likes Dave Matthews, we do Dave Matthews just to teach the fundamentals. So I'm on board with, I'm on board with that, man. Yeah, and I also discovered through teaching that I don't knew, know nearly as much about theory as I thought I did. I found out the because same thing. I, I'm learning every day. <laughs> yeah, once I started teaching them scales and the difference between major and minor, I realized that that was all I knew. Yeah. Uh, from like sort of uh, 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 from sort of a, a, an academic book learning uh, level, like I can play I – can, I can – figure out how to play in any sort of context. Yeah. But it's it's by ear. I got gotcha. you. You know what I mean? And I've never learned modes or uh you know, that sort of next level geometry. I tell you I I got into that, you know, when I was in school and whatnot, and I do have a couple advanced students that are learning that. But man, my comfort zone is that major and minor just like you said. So <laughs> you're not well, alone. you're not alone. Yeah, and the blue scale. Like, yeah. I mean, I find now I I rely more heavily on those fucking blue notes than I do anything. Oh, definitely, man. Yeah, you know. So when you uh, so you started learning from uh, the guy down the street, and uh, did that lead you into uh, like automatically wanting to start a band at that age, or like when was the first time you actually got with some guys and started jamming? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I took lessons from that dude for about a year, and then I just started. Uh, figuring shit out on my own. Okay. And because um, we moved a lot. So, like, I wasn't trying to, like, I just I had no interest in trying to find guitar teachers everywhere I went. So I just started figuring shit out off of records. And then I think when I was maybe 13, um, I started my first band with this dude named Chad. He's like, he was my oldest best friend. He, he wound up going on to play in a band called American head charge. Oh, I've heard of them before. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Really heavy, sort of kind of a darker kind of tech thing. And he, uh, he and I kind of formed each other as musicians to a large degree, you know, and, you know, rest his soul. He passed last October. Um, and uh one second and he uh but you know at some point we went our separate ways like when i got into punk rock he started getting into more technical shit yeah and um and so we didn't play together for very long but um yeah that definitely formed a lot of of uh who i was as a player because you know that early shit that gets into your head you never that's there forever. Oh yeah, definitely, man. I still, you know? I still listen to things that, that got me into music when I was like 12 years old. Like I can't get away from it. 
Right, but I, I also find myself calling on like licks and shit that I learned when I was thirteen. Oh, and definitely. Just, you know, yeah. And and then just you know pl- putting a different twist on them as you know as time goes on. But I was in a lot of different fucking bands. I mean, as as I'm sure you and anybody that's ever been in a band can relate. Yeah, you know definitely. what I mean. And also, again, because I kept moving around, I was finding different people to play with all the time. Were you uh, were you in a lot of like punk bands? Was that the majority of them, or were you playing any other genres back then? Um. Yeah, I mean, when I first started playing in bands, they were more sort of metal. Okay. And then I started playing in punk bands, and then around the mid '80s, I discovered Fishbone. Awesome. And yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of the shit that was going on in LA at the time. Uh, you know, it was Fishbone, and you know they they have become now something that I can't listen to and I don't understand. But at the time, the Chili Peppers were fucking hugely influential, and and they were fucking badasses on those first four records. You know, when they would show up and play in a parking lot, butt ass fucking naked, <laughs> and. And I mean, they were as DIY and punk as, you know, as anybody. So, you know, in LA at the time, it was, you know, it was Fishbone, it was the Peppers, it was Jane's Addiction. So that, that was definitely a chapter for sure, doing that kind of shit. What, what led the, I guess we'll just jump ahead a little bit then, like the, the formation of Goldfinger. I know you guys formed in like 1994 around that time period. What led up to that? And like, did you know the guys really well? Like, how did that all go down? John, John used to be in a band called the Electric Love Hogs. Okay. And when we first started Goldfinger, we first started getting attention, um, like Maximum Rock and Roll and Flipside and all those fucking cooler than thou punk magazines shredded us because John was in this band that was basically, you know, just considered a metal band. And he was, you know, sort of, uh, you know, you know, of course he was a sellout because he played in a metal band and then, you know, whatever, but that band, you know, if anybody had ever seen that band live, they would have shut the fuck up because they were fucking insane. And I used to, uh, guitar tech for them. When I first got clean, like I had been living on the streets, like sleeping on rooftops and shit like that. And then I got clean and those dudes, uh, a couple of those dudes were sort of in the same boat and they helped me out and, you know, and I would crash on their couches and shit like that. So I started working for them whenever they play shows and I became friends with them. And, uh, <clears throat> John, and I discovered we had a lot of the same roots. Um, you know, even though he was in this band that was, you know, like a cross between fucking Slayer and Faith No More, he came from Social D. You know, he came from uh, uh, the Selector and the English Beat and all that shit, and 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 the Descendants and whatnot. And then so, you know, he just sort of decided at one point that he just he wanted to. That's where his heart was, and that's what he wanted to play. And he hit me up, and he was like, you know, do you want to do this? And I said, yeah. So we got together and we jammed a couple of times. We wrote a couple of songs and it didn't really go anywhere. And I had wound up uh, going on tour with Danzig as a guitar tech, uh, working for one of the support bands. And and the support band that I was working for was not good. And it was fucking really frustrating for me every night to be sitting on the side of the stage tuning these guitars for a band that I just 
it, it, it drove me crazy not playing. Because you want to so, be up there, and especially if, if you're watching a band that you're not really digging, you're like, man, I'm working for this guy, and I could crush this guy. A hundred percent. And so when I got home off that tour, I know that John John actually had started Goldfinger at that point, and they were playing sh- local shows around town. And I also knew that the guitar player that he had <clears throat> had overdosed and was in rehab. And I also know John's work ethic. So I called him and I said, I know you have shows booked. Like, I'll fill in for him until he gets out of, out of the hospital. I just need to play. So, uh, so I learned something like 28 songs. And, I'm, and this, this sounds like bullshit, but it's true. I learned, he just sent me everything. Like, I went and picked up a cassette, a couple cassette tapes. And I sat down and I didn't know what songs we were going to play. So I learned every fucking song and then in a day. Wow. In the night. And then the next day we had rehearsal uh, with no bass player because he was he was in the hospital with 103 degree temperature or 104. Like something happened. So I rehearsed with them with no bass player. The next day after that, we had two shows. Wow. Yeah. So in 72 hours, I'm playing two shows with a band I never really played with. And the bass player, I, I met the bass player as we were walking on stage. <laughs> And, uh, and so we played this one show, packed up our shit, drove across town to another place, um, and, uh, and played another show. And by the end of that, the bass player was fucked and he went straight back to the emergency room. Well, I, I get, I give him a lot of credit for actually showing up and doing it though. That's great, man. Yeah. That was Simon. And, and, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that was sort of how my deal with Goldfinger started. So you guys were pretty hard working and I, I can tell, you know, from you just, you know, cramming and getting all those done, you and John probably hit it off pretty well as far as the work ethic goes, correct? I learned a lot from him. I really did. I got to tell you, like, in the early days, John and I were really close. We had a lot in common and I learned work ethic from him because uh, we would rehearse five days a week. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, it, it was, you know, and then we'd go out and we'd flyer, we'd finish rehearsal we, and we'd go out and we'd flyer every fucking night. And so I learned work ethic from him. And I also learned um, uh, a lot about songwriting and crafts because at the root of everything John does is the Beatles. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, and, you know, the Beatles and Motown, and Motown is my favorite music of all time. That's just. That's it. That's as that's the best you're ever gonna get in yeah. songwriting. I mean, you know, that's that's fucking it. Mic drop. End of discussion. Like, I don't give a fuck what anybody says. And it kind of breaks my heart now when I meet younger people and I'm like, "Who's your favorite band?" And they're like, "I don't know, fucking uh, uh, Thirty Seconds to Mars or fucking Atreyu." Or <laughs> and I'm like, "Really? Like, not the Stones?" Yeah, not not even the old school not, punk stuff. Like they go straight the to the new boys. stuff. Yeah. yeah, no, I know, but like all time, not Led Zeppelin, not you know what I mean. Not yeah. a, you know, like it's a band with fucking three records that all kind of <laughs> sound the same. Yeah. That are really just a collection of you know at that point forty years worth of influences. I'm like, you're not going to dig any deeper than than you know, AFI. 
Yeah, I mean, that was that was my favorite part of being, I think I'm a little bit younger than you, but my favorite part when I was growing up was I would see, you know, even when I was young and like Green Day and everything was getting big, I would see what they were into. I remember, you know, getting a Metallica record and Cliff had a Misfit shirt on. So I went to the record store and bought a Misfit CD. I didn't even know what, what it was, but I love that, that search, that digging. And I don't think people really do that much anymore. Yeah, it's funny. It's it's credit to you that you went from Metallica to the Misfits and you got the Misfits. Oh, I loved because them. Because yeah. a, they sounded fucking nothing like Metallica. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and those early records. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I'm almost forty. I'll be forty this year. I discovered the Misfits. It was the '80s, and the '80s was the era of Guinness. <laughs> the the '80s were, you know, I mean, records were super slick and yeah. super overproduced in the '80s, and those those. Misfits records. They're the antithesis to that, man. They're they're completely like different. Shit. Oh and yeah, it, it, dude. I, you know, like everything, it was a chick that got me into the Misfits. Because when I was in junior high, you know, all the cool chicks were kind of like these goth punk chicks, and they were hot and they were interesting and they were different. And and this one girl, Carrie Tilden, used to make me mixtapes. <clears throat> you know, and at the time, I'm listening to you know, fucking Metallica and Maiden and all that shit. And yeah. she's making the mixtapes of, you know, Social D and TSOL and the Misfits, but she's also making me Susie and the Banshees and Psychic TV and Bauhaus. And that was sort of my introduction to what at the time was genuinely, truly alternative music. Yeah. And had it not been from that, I don't know if I would have gotten it. Like if I would have went and bought Static Age and just on my own and put, went home and put it on the turntable, I don't know if I would have understood it. I, I think part part of it for me, even though I mean I was super young too. I was probably I got my I got Master of Puppets from my uncle when I was seven. So I mean I think I I think I got my first Misfits uh, tape when I was maybe eight or nine, and I knew that I really liked the vocals, I liked the melodies, but I didn't really understand what else was going on because it was recorded so poorly. But in my mind, they were. So so fucking out of tune. Oh yeah, and in my mind though, I love Metallica so much. I'm like, well, if they like them, I'm gonna force myself to like them. And then I ended up really liking them. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. It, it's like you know, Metallica. When I got a little bit older, they loved drinking Coors Light. So when I was older, I was like, well, I've got to drink Coors Light because James Hetfield drinks Coors Light. <laughs> I don't ever remember Metallica. I know that Metallica drank a lot of Jägermeister. They did, yeah. But. I have a funny story about bands and Coors Light. Well, let's go for it, man. Let's hear it. <laughs> okay, so Corn, uh, uh, buddies of ours, we'd grown up, not grown up, but we came up in L.A. around the same time they did when they were so-called LAPD. Okay. And uh, and so we were homies with them for a long time. And uh, Monkey was telling me the story about how the first time they went to Germany – and they were actually making real money. They, they, they're Bakersfield white trash. Yeah. So they came up on they came up on Coors Light, and they go to Germany and they're drinking these heavy fucking beers. And by the time they get on stage every night, they were shit faced. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, we can't do this. So they paid to have a whole pallet of Coors Light shipped over to them in Germany. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. And and they were just drinking, so they you know because they were they just they couldn't play. Yeah, that's crazy, so, man. Yeah, that's 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 <laughs> definitely like a modern day Spinal Tap story. That's that's pretty great, man. Those guys are those guys are nice. I've met them one time. They were super super cool, but it was just in passing at a, at a gig, you know. Yeah, 
And the other thing about like when I when I tell people like, oh yeah, we were friends with Corn, we were friends with the Deftones, and you know uh, all that. Like in L.A. at the time, in the the late '80s, early '90s, it wasn't. There was definitely a punk scene, but we were also surrounded by. I mean, at the time, everybody wanted to fucking be Nirvana. Yeah. And you know, we were surrounded by all these bands that were rebelling against that and and corn and, and and deftones and rage against the machine were part of that like it it doesn't sound like it makes sense like goldfinger and rage and that sort of thing at the same time but one thing that we all had in common was the bad brains oh definitely if you especially listen to the first deftones record you can definitely hear that bad brains influence that influence is everywhere i mean you can, i think i mean i love the deftones i still listen to them to this day and even some of the later albums you can still hear the influence Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, dude, I mean, that whole first record, Chino, the way he sings, it's 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 HR on Sacred Love. Totally, man. You know, so, yeah, like there, we had a, a strange sort of community at the time. But, yeah, those were dudes that we came up with. Well, that kind of brings me, I usually wait till the end, but this actually, you're kind of talking about a question. I, I have uh, my Instagram followers ask questions of the guests coming up and uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and ask it because you're kind of in that area. Uh, Court Nelson from California, he wanted me to ask you how interconnected or not was the SoCal scene back in the nineties between the punk ska bands and the pop punk bands? Um, well, hello Court. And, uh, um, it was, um, it it wasn't in Hollywood. We were one of the only bands in Hollywood that were doing what we were doing. And that sounds like I'm fucking stroking my dick, but I'm not it really, <laughs> like I said, everybody at the time wanted to be Nirvana. They wanted to be Alice in Chains or whatever. And then we would get, you know, we would get on these bills and like everybody else on the bill is heroin and we're fucking cocaine. And yeah. so it didn't really work. So we wound up having to go a lot to San Diego, a lot to Orange County, a lot to Riverside to find bands that we fit with. And, um, so this, once we sort of started like piling into a bunch of cars and going to uh, outside of LA proper, that's when we found that scene. And those bands were very interconnected. Um, uh, props to Bucko nine and the Skeletones because they started giving us our first proper ska and punk shows in LA, you know, and they, they definitely reached out to us and, and, and believed in what we were doing and, and, and helped us out in the beginning. Did you guys, when you first started the group and started writing songs, I mean, I know that, that you guys did it and then you kind of went away and came back, but was it always that ska influence or was it, I mean, how was it right there at the beginning before you guys signed? Um, <clears throat> that was always a part of what we were doing. And, um, I mean, it's, it's funny. I've, I never, because to me, like I said, punk rock was 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 TSOL and it was Seven Seconds, yeah. and I didn't really consider Goldfinger a punk band in that sense. I thought of us more as a uh, like a, just a, a power pop band. Okay, you know, more like a Husker Du, more yeah. like a like a the Plimsolls, that kind of thing I with see punk that. influences. Yeah, and you know, and then we would mix in. Uh, and like I said, John and I loved Toots and we loved Desmond Decker and all that shit. And we started mixing that in, you know, cause at the time ska bands in, in this area were fucking ska bands and punk bands were punk bands. And, you know, 
there were occasionally a ska band would break into like a 30 second really fast thing. And it was kind of like a, a piss take on punk. Do you know what I mean? Or, or like, like a, a tip of the hat to some of the, some of the other shit they liked, but you know, it, it wasn't as prevalent when we started playing. And I still, you know, it, it irritated the shit out of me as years went on that we were labeled as the ska band. Cause it was maybe 10% of what we did. Yeah. I never um, thought of you guys as a ska band. I mean, I, I listened to real big fish and, and less than Jake and the different bigger ska bands when I was into punk rock, but I, I just looked at you guys. I mean, as a punk band, but I can see the power pop thing you're saying, but I never considered you guys a ska band. Yeah. And it, you know, towards, you know, as years went on, it drove me fucking crazy that all we would tour with were fucking ska bands. We were constantly going out with Real Big Fish and Less Than Jake and bands like that. And I'm like, can't we go out with Anti-Flag? That would you know be awesome. I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, and it, so yeah, it definitely, it definitely pigeonholed us. Well, I want to, I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, I've actually, I mean, we've not really met when I was on the road and you were on the road, but I actually, when I was a junior in high school, uh, you guys were the only reason, well, you guys in no doubt, uh, I live here in Indiana and I, there was this thing called X Fest, which was this big mm-hmm. radio festival that you guys were playing with no doubt and seven Mary three and a bunch of these other bands, the Nixons and, uh, yeah. me and all my buddies went to it. We all bought Goldfinger shirts. We watched you guys. When you guys were playing the set, they cut the power on you because you, you guys played an extra song and like John like got naked and you guys were flipping people off. And it was like the most <laughs> it was the most punk awesome thing I'd ever seen in my, you know, 17 years of life. And that was common, by the way. Oh, I'm sure it was like that used to happen to us all the fucking time. The, be- the best so, part yeah. of that was is that after that show, it was at this big, you know, outdoor like Verizon amphitheater or whatever. We went to Steak and Shake and you guys were there and we had Goldfinger shirts on so you invited us to sit down and you guys ate dinner with us and it was one of my best memories from being young and actually (laughs) going to a show yeah that was something um that was something we always had you know what i mean um we always had huge gratitude for for the people that that came out to our shows for the people that dug what we were doing and um you know i mean remember like before I joined Goldfinger, I was, I was like a street urchin, like, like I literally going from couch to couch, sleeping on rooftops. I remember there was this apartment building in Hollywood that had like on the roof, it had a, uh, like a like a, like a hot room, like, you know, where they pour water on the rocks, like a steam room. Yeah. And I used to go up into this building and I would sleep in the steam room. And, and like, so to go from, literally that um to to having people show up to hear me play guitar that all happened pretty quickly and so for people like you that like sort of showed up and and dug what we were doing and allowed me to eat three meals a day we we never we always had gratitude for that i just remember it was so cool because you know i I was young i'd I'd been to a couple punk shows and i've been to big huge like metallica and and on acdc and all these things but we walked in to steak and shake and you guys were sitting there and we didn't even say hi to you you saw our shirts and you're like come eat with us and we sat down and we talked to you guys for like two hours it was one of the best memories of my young life i loved it man so thank you for that cool i'm I'm glad that was a good experience and that 
we weren't dicks to you. <laughs> and, and then I, I was hoping that we would cross paths at some point when I was on the road and actually, you know, touring professionally, but it just never happened. And then I found you on Facebook and just because of that chance meeting back when I was super young, I, I wanted to add you. So thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. No problem, man. So you guys, you guys released the self-titled album on Universal. What was the signing process like? Like, how did that come about? <clears throat> okay, so... <clears throat> Um, oh, fuck. God, this story's been told so many times, and, <laughs> and it's um, John was working at this uh, punk rock clothing store called Nana. Okay, where they sold like leopard skin jackets and creepers and all that kind of shit. And this dude came in one day, and he had seen John in the Love Hogs in his previous band, and he was like, "Holy shit, you know, uh, wh- what are you doing now? That band was awesome." And John was like, "Oh, you know," and he gave him he gave him the first Goldfinger demos, the ones that I played on, thank God. Yeah. And uh, and it so happened that this dude was part of this. Uh, I don't even know how to explain it, but like sort of like a music development company. Okay. And so they were really interested in us, and they you know, started coming to shows and all this shit. And then, you know, around that time is when Green Day fucking exploded. So they were signing anybody that remotely sounded punk rock, correct? Yeah. And so we, uh, so this, these, these people, I don't even know how to describe them, but this, this company started inviting a bunch of labels out to see, they were trying to get us a deal. Okay. And, um, and everybody passed on us for one reason or another. And then so this company said, fuck it, we'll, we'll make a record with you guys and we'll, you know, we'll put it out. And, you know, and, and essentially that's what happened. And then so somebody, so we made this record on this company, with this company. And uh, uh, I really to this day don't know how, but the, but the, but the, 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 the big dudes at K rock got a hold of here in your bedroom. Okay. And I, and, and I guess the, the program director just listened to it constantly. And he's like, I'm going to play this. And we didn't have, I don't even think our record was mastered yet. And we didn't have distribution. We didn't have anything. And he started playing it on the radio, like a month before our record even came out. So we had to, you know, haul ass and, and figure out a way to get this record in stores, which we did. And, um, and so then all, because we weren't really, we were signed to this company kind of, but it wasn't really a record deal. So then all the majors and all the independent punk labels that had passed on us came back around trying to sign us. So essentially that's what happened. I mean, that's a version of it. I, I, it's, it was a long time ago. I, I, I kind of have a similar kind of experience. Like I was in the Ataris and uh, that song that kind of made the band get to the next level. Yeah, you guys were dope, by the way. Like you're, you're kind of underselling your, your, <laughs> your fucking legacy. You're like, yeah, I toured a little bit and blah, blah, blah. No, you guys were fucking dope. In fact, I do think that we played a couple shows together with you guys. We may have. I just don't think you and I actually got in the same room, but I remember there was probably a couple festivals or something, something overseas. No, I maybe. feel like we played, a show together at the glass house. That's a major possibility. We played yeah. there. We played there quite a bit, but yeah. I, I was going to say the whole K rock thing. One of the stories that I'm not sure how out in the public it is, but, uh, 
when Boys of Summer, that Don Henley cover that the Ataris did, when that kind of hit, that wasn't yeah. that wasn't even going to be a single. That was going to be like a soundtrack thing if we could get the rights or whatever. But K Rock started playing that, and it almost forced the record label, Columbia Records, to put that out as the first single. So that was always kind of a weird thing for the Ataris, and I think it's it just kind of shows the power that the radio used to have. I'm not sure if they still have that power or not. They absolutely do not have that power. I didn't think they did, but yeah, back in the day, yeah. if K Rock played your stuff, man, you were you were you were going places. <laughs> hundred percent because all the other alternative stations and literally the world would look to see what K-Rock was doing. There was K-Rock and then there was that station in, in DC for some reason. I'm not sure why, Yeah, but those two stations decided everything. That's crazy. Well, I yeah. guess it's good for both of our careers. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, you, uh, I want to skip ahead a little bit. Actually, this is called that one time on tour. So when you guys were hitting really big here in your bedroom came out, everything was kind of, you know, starting to get big. You're playing the radio festivals and whatnot. What was touring like? Did you, did you guys start out doing the van thing across the country or did the album just hit really big and it kind of changed all overnight? What was it like? Um, yeah, we, I mean, our first tour ever we did in a minivan Wow. and we were playing on, uh, the other band's gear. So, so there was that. We did that for a while, and then you know we graduated to a proper van and our own gear. And uh, you know when we could afford a hotel room, it was one hotel room and me sleeping on the floor. And uh, I just chose to sleep on the floor. I liked it better. I don't know. You know. So there was a lot of that, and there was a lot of like, you know people feeding us and, and, you know, eternally grateful for that shit and playing like literally in some kid's basement oh, yeah. at VFW halls at all that shit. And then, you know, and then, it, you know, it built. And then I remember when we were on the, we were on the second warp tour, which was 96 yeah. and we were still in a van and everybody else had buses and, uh, and we would go onto their buses and it was so dope. We were like, holy shit, like you get to watch TV while you're driving. Like we were really excited. And then, uh, and then halfway through that tour, we got a bus and it was hilarious because we got a whole fucking, you've seen Friday, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. So, so his bucket in that car, where like, you know, it's, it's barely on the road and, and that was our bus and like other bands would make fun of us because, and it was ironic because a lot of those bands at that time were like fat wreck bands or whatever. And they were like kind of given a shade because we were on MTV and they were sort of like, Oh, you guys are big time fucking sellouts. Yet they were making fun of our bus because it literally couldn't stay on the road. Like it would swerve it. Like there was black smoke pouring out of the top of it. And like, it was like, oh, here comes Goldfinger and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And like, <laughs> at one point we had some weird plumbing issue and there was like two inches of water covering the floor of the bus, but we didn't, we just all moved to higher bunks yeah. to stay out of the water. We didn't fucking care. We were so excited to be able to lay down while we were driving that we didn't give a shit. Yeah, I remember like I had the same thoughts because I've done the warp tour in a van, I've done it a bus bus, I've done an RV and it it's it's a different feeling when you can actually kind of relax, you've got a driver, you can just kind of get stuff done or just don't do nothing on the bus. Like when you're in a van, that to I mean touring in and of itself is brutal in a van, but that tour is incredibly brutal in a van. 
I've I've done the world tour three times in a van when I was when uh, when I did it with Black President, and you know I got we got a little love because I had because I had done Warped and Goldfinger and I you know I had a little bit of that sort of connection with Kevin Lyman and those people so we were in a van but I mean we would still get to eat like because you know most of those bands most of the side stage bands and shit they don't they don't get catering. They don't get showers, you know, so, you know, respect. But we, you know, we got to eat and we got to take showers and shit like that. But you're still parking a half a mile from your stage. You're still dragging your fucking gear across a half mile of of gravel. And, yeah, it's fucking brutal. It's really brutal, man. Well, hey, I wanted to get into Black President. So before we get into that, though, uh, you you left Goldfinger in 2001. Uh, Can you kind of explain what happened there? Yeah, um, oh, fuck, um, uh, so, um, it had gotten to a point where, like, I was always, I was always the odd man out in that band. I was always the one who wanted us to be heavier, to be, you know, less cutesy, you know what I mean? Like, all of our videos, all our whole public sort of persona to me was just kind of like just a little kind of juvenile and lame, you know? And I always, you know, I'm like, you know, we're out here repping punk rock and we're like, we're a punk rock band, but I'm like, but we're fucking not yeah. by to, to my way of thinking. Do you know what I mean? And so, um, we had made, we had made stomping around at that point. Okay. And I had actually quit the band when we were doing pre-production for, for stomping around. Cause I was just not feeling it. I wasn't, you know, like the songs that we had chosen to go on the record versus other songs that were getting left off the record. I was just like, and I wasn't like angry about it. I said, look to, to the other guys and everybody. I said, look, I'm not, this isn't a fuck you, but the bottom line is you guys are all on the same page and you, and and I, you know, we clearly don't want to do the same thing. Yeah. You know, the band was, had enough of a name where I figured it'll be easy for you to find a guitar player. It'll be easy for you to find somebody that like fits in and, and, and wants to do what you guys want to do. Get it. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and so, I'm like, I love you guys and good luck. And I'm out. So I was out of the band for about a week. And so, so this is how I got back in the band at that time. Um, so it's Valentine's day. Okay. And I wake up to a knock on my door at like 10 in the morning, which to me is the fucking crack of dawn. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck. And I had a girl in my bed. So I get up and I go to the door and it's Feldy. Okay. And I'm like, what's up, dude? And he's like, can we talk? And I was like, yeah, sure, I guess. So I let him in. And then another girl that I'd been dating pulled into my driveway. <laughs> and I was like, fuck. And he's like, what's going on? I go, mm, and I told him what was up. And he's like, I got you. So he runs downstairs. And and this girl gets out of her truck. And she's got like a bunch of presents for me and shit. And I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, and he's like, and he walks out. And I hear him. He's like. Hey, have you seen Charlie? And she's like, no, he's not here. And he's like, no, I've been knocking on his door. I called him. He's not answering. I don't think he's here. And she's like, oh, shit. So 
he got he ran a pick and roll for me and he yeah. got her to fucking leave. It's <laughs> what and friends do, like, man. That's you know great. <laughs> That's my fucking boy. Yeah, hell yeah. So to, and to be clear, I'm not that big of a scumbag. I was not cheating <laughs> on the girl that had showed up. I got just, you. You know, I got it you. It was bad timing. Bad timing, and, uh, and maybe there was no like commitment or anything. I got you, man. A hundred percent. You know, she was not my old lady, but you know, anyway, regardless, it still would have been ugly. Yeah. And so he comes back in, up into my house, and I just gave him a hug. I'm like, all right, dude. Like, what do you want to talk about? So he's like, look. So essentially, the band, primarily John you know, compromised and they're like, you know, how can we make this work? And I'm like, okay, like we need to put these songs on the record and like, we need a producer. Cause John had produced the first, basically had produced the first two records, Yeah. you know? And, and so we did that and we made stomping ground. Now, if you know the band and you know that record, you know that it's decidedly heavier. It is way way different record. than the other stuff, I will say, yeah. Uh-huh, 100%. And um, so, so we made that record, um, and, uh, you know, we go tour, and it's fine, whatever. And then we come home, and we're going to make the next record. You know, and and we were having sort of a band meeting about it, and the whole band was basically like, "You forced us to make a fucking metal record, <laughs> so now essentially they're telling me you don't get a vote on this record." Wow. And I was like, uh, "All right, fuck y'all. I am, I am out. I'm out this time but for actually, good." <laughs> it didn't happen. That sort of set the vibe. Yeah. You know, and also we were signing to another label at that point. And there was just weird shit going on with the the money and the royalties, and it just got increasingly sort of salty. And so what had happened was we were in the middle of making whatever that record, and we had a flyout gig. We were going to go play somewhere, I think Toronto maybe. And dude, the tensions were brutal in the band, and we were rehearsing. John didn't show up to rehearsal. Wow. Kelly and Darren got into it in rehearsal. They got into some fucking screaming match, and and Darren jumped over his fucking kit, knocked Kelly down, and started choking him out. Jeez, man! And like, and I didn't. I just walked out of the room. I was just like, "Fuck this! This is. I'm not. I'm not with this anymore. This is just. You know, we're not getting along. We're we're making a record that I don't want to listen to. Um, and and essentially, you know this has turned into a fucking uh, dictatorship. You know what I mean? John's producing the record again. He's, you know, it's a blah, blah, blah. And I just called my management, our manager. And I'm like, I'm out later. And then John called me immediately. And then, you know, we got into a huge fucking screaming match on the phone. And that was that. That's when I quit the band. And that was, that was in 2001. Yeah. Okay, so it's in 2005 you came back to Goldfinger, but you also formed Black President with Greg Hetson from the Circle Jerks and Bad Religion, right? Yeah. Okay. So what had happened with Black President was I had started playing these shows. Uh, I had put a band together. It was me, <clears throat> Hetson, Roy from uh, Sepultura, and Nausea on drums. Wow. Um, uh, when Hetson wasn't available, we'd play with Lawrence from the Boss Tones or um, or my homie from the Dwarves on guitar, <clears throat> and um, and Christian um, 
was singing. He had played with Didi Ramone and he'd done some, I think he might've been a DJ at one point. And we just started playing around town, just playing punk rock covers. And we were called shithead. And we started sort of getting a following. Because, I mean, you know who those dudes are. Like, oh, everybody yeah. in that band could fucking play. Oh, yeah, Chris definitely. Could sing his fucking face off. And, you know, the it was good. And people kept telling us, you guys need to be a real band. You guys need to write songs. And I'm like, man, the, 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 the hard part is done. Like, I didn't write Ace of Spades. Yeah. I didn't write, I didn't write Suspect Device. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like, I can't write that kind of shit. Um so there was no thought of it becoming a real band. And then what happened was uh, Bush beat Carrie in 2004. Okay, yeah. And I was fucking just livid. And, I mean, I don't know if you remember the political climate at the time. I mean, I do. I think it uh, I think it was kind of you know familiar with how things are now, but it, it was pretty bad. I remember how polarized it was. Yeah, 100%. And I wrote this song called Last Fucking Hope. And I went to the shithead guys and I was like, hey, I wrote this song, you know, let's play it. And we did. And it went over as well as any of the covers we were playing. So then I just started writing feverishly and that became Black President. Now, keep in mind. That was four years before Barack. That's what I was going to say. And you know what? It's crazy that talking to you has just brought up a memory. Um, I remember another time that we met. I was playing with the Ataris, and we were in Philly, and you guys were playing a venue down the street from the venue we were playing, and we sat and talked to you at your van for probably an hour. This And that that was Black, okay. Black President. I think it was uh, 2009, 2008, something like that. Okay, yeah, that's Probably 2008. Yeah. Maybe 2007, actually, because we toured a lot before that record came out. I just remember it was in Philly because we were walking down the street and I saw you and I'd always been a big Goldfinger fan. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, this is this is your new band. And we started talking and like me and the other guys were there for a while. And you guys had just got done playing like an earlier gig and we were playing down the street later on. Yeah, we are probably playing a matinee or something. Yeah. Okay, I didn't mean to cut you off, so yeah, so keep going. So that was no, like no, that's, that's fine. four, and, four you know, years so before it, Obama, you guys had the name Black President, which I think is pretty awesome. Yeah, and, um, you know, and then and we had other obligations. Like I said, we were all in other bands, and, you know, so we were doing – because at that point I started playing with Goldfinger again. So we would, you know, come back to Black President when we were all home again. And um, so it took a while to build it. And then um, we signed with Cobra out of Chicago. And by the time the record came out, it was September of 2008. Okay. And before we made the record, before we locked into anything that was going to uh, uh, be long term, we, we had a pretty good MySpace following at that point. And I just posted it. I'm like, should you know with what's going on right now with this this dude out of chicago should we change our name yeah you know and it overwhelmingly it was fuck no i think you it's know? i think it's a great name <laughs> and then so barack gets elected thank god and um and so here we are a punk band with a name that sort of endorses the status quo which was bittersweet but we we still believed in it, you know what I mean, yeah. and we certainly had you know uh, you know high hopes for the you know for him 
doing the right thing in office. So at the time, we were cool with it. And we caught a lot of shit from the usual suspects, from, you know, from Maxim Rock and Roll and punknews.org. Like, you know. The punker than now people. I get you, yeah. Suck my fucking dick. I got you. I feel the same way, dude. (laughs) Yeah. And so, so that was that. And the thing is, the band broke up because, um, um, essentially, I I wrote that whole first record. Yeah, I think Christian and Hudson co-wrote a couple of songs, but I wrote most of it. And once Barack got elected, like I just didn't have that same sort of focused rage creatively. Well, maybe it's time yeah, to get the band back together people. now. <laughs> huh? Maybe it's time yeah, to get back together with the current climate, correct? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard that. <laughs> I hear it probably on a weekly basis. That's but, great. But uh, we were still writing. Because um, at that point, Dave Braun from Lagwagon was our drummer, and he was such a fucking joy to play with that at every sound check, I would come up with new riffs. And, you know, and so we were still writing music, but I would try to write lyrics, and I'm like, I don't really know. You know, that doesn't mean that things weren't still fucked, but they were a different kind of fucked. You, know you, I mean? you just maybe weren't inspired like you were before. Yeah, yeah. it was a, definitely a different kind of inspiration. So, you know, we got home off that tour and I'm like, you know, you know, we're all in our mid thirties at that point. And I said, we did the undoable. And we, as a, like a straight up hardcore street punk band, you know, being a bunch of old guys, we got a deal. We made a record. We toured all over the States and Europe, and we sold probably 10,000 copies of that fucking record. That's great. I said, I don't know what the next record is going to be, and I don't know how long it's going to take me to write it, and that was sort of it. You know what I mean? Not only that, Christian, our singer, had had a kid, Yeah. and it got it really, really hard for him to be on the road. You know what I mean? Because his baby was brand new. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and Christian's voice was as much a part of what that band was as, as my songs. So, you know, I could tell that it was killing him to be away from his kids. So, you know, we, we're proud of that record. We're proud of what we did. We're, you know, we're proud of the fact that we smoked everybody we played with. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that, you know what I mean? So I, we're getting up to an hour. I don't want to take a lot of your time, but I've, I've had a blast talking to you. I did I want to nowhere to be until nine o'clock my time. So. <laughs> okay. Well, what I would like to talk to you about uh, is a little bit about your acting career that you've done. Uh, okay. You've been on a couple of TV shows, you know, Justified, The Shield. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how that came about, or is that always a thing that you were into? Well. Mm, I think because of my voice. People had always said, you should do voiceovers or you should be an actor. And it was kind of sort of like, oh, that's funny. It was in the back of my head, but I, I, it was, wasn't something I pursued until one day I was uh, out in front of a show with a bunch of people. And, uh, you know, it was – I can't remember what the fucking show was. I want to say it was either Agent Orange or Seven Seconds. And there was some skinheads there and there was, you know – punks and whatever and and these people walked up to us and they're like hey we're shooting a movie and you know we're casting you know skinheads and punks do you guys want to come down it's 75 bucks for the day and we'll feed you and we were like sure hell yeah and so this is pre-goldfinger this is you know like i said i was still probably in rough shape so 75 bucks a day to me was fucking 
a fortune. Yeah. So I wind up, I go down there to, to just do two days on this movie. And, um, and the director dug me. And then as time went on, he, he kept telling, you know, the PAs or whoever would kept saying, can you come tomorrow? Can you come tomorrow? So I was in more and more and more scenes in this movie. And then towards the end of the movie, the director started giving me lines because wow. I wasn't supposed to, I was an extra. Yeah. And so I got cast Hartley into SAG because of that. That's great. Man. And so I have a SAG membership and I, and no acting dreams or training or anything. And then, and then it kind of slowly built from there. Like I got a part in another indie and then I got, um, and then, and then I got an agent and it, you know, it kind of, it was, it's never been my focus yeah. and it was always something that I would do when I wasn't on the road and, you know, I would get a call and I'm like, okay, you know, go to West LA at fucking 1130 tomorrow and, and try out for this part. And I got to say it was beginner's luck because I got a, I booked a lot of shit in those first couple of years. Did you like enjoy it kind of like music or was it, did you feel like it was more of just a job, like a task that you were doing? Um, no, it was fun because I had, uh, I had sort of a natural proclivity for it. Okay. And also I think because people didn't expect me to be good at it because, you know, I, you know, I had the shaved head and a bunch of tattoos and. And they were just like, you know, you're, you're clearly here because of your haircut. Yeah. And then, you know, and then I would do a scene with, you know, or I do rehearsal with an, an actual working actor and hold my own. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's, it's, you know, I don't care what anybody says. It's nice to be recognized to, for being good at something. Definitely. And so that was, that was really fun. It was validating for me. And like I said, you know, uh, I would, my life was not great at the time and i would have to i would have to uh give a friend's address because i didn't have a mailing address at the time to get paid you know what i mean and so that 800 bucks or whatever would last me for you know sometimes three months wow you know what i mean so um and i had a pager yeah you know for for 15 bucks a month because this was the 90s and that's how i would book (laughs) gigs do, is it something that's ongoing? Like, do you have any aspirations to do it like more or is that just something that's kind of you're done with that part of your life? No, I would do it if, uh, if the right opportunity came along, but, um, but I just, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't, uh, I haven't, cause what happens is if you're not a name, if you're not really established in that world, you get sent out on the most fucking ridiculous auditions. And I just got sick of it. You know, I got sick of getting up at six in the morning to go to drive, you know, a fucking hour in rush hour traffic to audition as a surfer. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what my agent sent me on. Yeah. And the thing is, if you if you turn down, you know, a number of auditions, they're going to stop sending you on auditions. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or I would get sent out for like bikers or something and I would walk into this fucking audition room and there were, you know, 15 dudes twice my size with beards down to their bellies, many of whom were actual fucking Mongols. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm just like, this is fucking ridiculous. What are you sending me on? You know what I mean? 
Well, I'll, I'll tell so, you, man, in preparation for this uh, conversation, I went on to YouTube and I saw you get shot on the season finale of Justified. And I, I saw right. you in a couple other things. And man, yeah. you're a good actor, man. Like you, like you said, you held your own with those people. I, I, I personally would love to see you kind of do the trajectory of a Henry Rollins and maybe start doing your own TV shows and stuff. You know, I would, and I have to credit a couple of really cool actors. And I did a movie called uh, Toolbox Murders with Toby Hooper, who did the the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he did Poltergeist. And he pulled me aside, and he kind of talked through – he gave me like a crash course in acting. And he said – essentially what he said was, forget what's in the script. And and what he meant by that was, say the words that are on the page, but – put your own meeting into them. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah. like if you're saying, uh, yeah, I'm out of here. I got to be somewhere at 12. What does he actually fucking mean? And, you know, and like he would mean like, you know, like I've, I've, I'm, I'm going to go meet with fucking, you know, somebody in fucking MS 13 to do some business in a half an hour. And if, and if I, if I show up, you know, I'm going to make, you know, 30 grand. And if I don't show up, I'm fucking dead. Like you just, you put your own meaning behind these words. So when you say it, what you're saying is all those things that I just said, even though you're just saying the words that are in the script and like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Oh, definitely. When every, when anybody, when anybody says anything, when you're hitting on a chick, when you're going to Seven Eleven to buy a goddamn Slurpee, you have a fucking motivation. Definitely. Yeah. You know what I mean? So basically he, he told me how to, how to find that. And that's what helped. You know what I mean? Well, man, everything that I saw, like I said, I watched a lot of clips today and, and I just thought you were, you were great. So I, I hope to see you in more stuff, man. I also want to know, do you have any new music projects coming out soon? Um, yeah, I am. I'm writing with Monique for the next Save Ferris record. Oh, awesome. That's great. Cause she and I have been friends for, you know, since back in the day and we've always been friends and you know, she, she's doing another Save Ferris record and she doesn't want it to sound like what people are used to from that band. So she called me. So we're working on that. And, um, I do, um, I do uh, a show once a month at this club in LA called El Cid. Okay. And what it is, is, uh, I put a band together of, you know, it's sort of like shithead in the sense that it's all people in touring bands and shit like that when they're in town. And we do, uh, uh, we do bizarre covers and we back up drag Queens. <laughs> that sounds great. And man. I've been doing something like this off and on since 99, honestly. And, um, and it, I gotta tell you, it's the most rock and roll punk rock fucking edgy dope shit like it's really like you know punk rock in the early 80s in hollywood where half the scene and in la at least punk came out of the gay community yeah yeah you know and you know when you're on stage you know and i make sure that the band is ridiculously tight so we can hold the show together um because you never know what the queens are going to do they'll stop (laughs) singing in the middle of the song and like you know fucking get naked or fucking <laughs> you know we were playing one show and um one of our queens named candy ass had beef with another queen and didn't know that other queen was on the show so we're in the middle of playing fucking i don't know love my way by the psych furs or something and he looks over and he sees this queen waiting in the wings because she's coming on next 
and just stops in the middle of the song and goes over, and there's this gnarly fucking drag queen cat fight in, in, <laughs> on stage. And, like, it's fucking, it's fucking crazy, and it's, it's so much fun. That's awesome, And it, like I said, it's once a month at this place called El Cid, and the night's called Queen Bitch after a, uh, after a David Bowie song. It, and, it just uh, compounds the fact that I need to move out of Indiana. <laughs> There's a lot of yeah. cool stuff going on out in L.A. <laughs> Not only that, dude, I know you got Oladipo, but the Pacers ain't doing shit this year. So, you know, we got King James. <laughs> I, I know you're a Lakers man. guy, man. I'm not a big sports fan, but I do like my Pacers. But, man, <clears throat> I knew you were a Lakers guy. I was going to ask you, how do you feel about all the LeBron stuff? Because a lot of my listeners are, are basketball fans. Um. It was weird for me. I didn't want LeBron initially, but that's when I thought we were probably going to get Paul George and Kawhi. And the reason I didn't want LeBron, because um, dude, he's 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 fucking King James. He's undeniable. Yeah. But the reason I didn't want him is because he's. I didn't want my proud and storied fucking team to turn into LeBron's next stop. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. You know, I gotcha. and, and have and have the mighty fucking Lakers turn into LeBron's new team. You know, I didn't want him to come in and sort of take over. You know what I mean? In the same way, I wouldn't want Slash to go out and play with Lee Ving and do fear songs. You know what I mean? <laughs> Man, it would all be about Slash. It would all be about Slash. Yeah, I got it. That's <laughs> yeah, and and so, but you know what? We got the greatest fucking player alive on our team, and and it, it is what it is. And you know, and I and I I love him and I respect him. So we'll see. Well, I think you guys will probably handle the Pacers pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I think you guys won't have a problem with that. Well, well, well hey, you know, LeBron beat the Pacers in the, in the, in the playoffs last year. And that was with a bunch of bums And the current yeah. Lakers squad is definitely better than the Cavs squad that he left. So. Well, I, I, w- I wish the Lakers luck then, man. I'll vicariously live that through you. I know you're a huge fan of that team. So. Yeah appreciate you well hey man i just want to say it's been a pleasure having you on the show and catching up with you and uh i would love at some point in the future maybe when the when that record you're working on comes out maybe have you come have you back for a part two or something maybe yeah absolutely absolutely and i and i appreciate your time and uh fucking go pacers for what it's worth (laughs) thanks a lot man well hey charlie you have a great evening take care of those dogs and uh i'll be in touch man thanks a lot all right my man take it easy bye And there it was, my conversation with Mr. Charlie Polson from Goldfinger and Black President. I had a great time talking with Charlie. He even got me to talk about sports. I'm not a big sports guy, but I know from Facebook that he's really into his Lakers. So uh, I had to rep the Pacers a little bit because I'm from Indiana. So thank you guys for checking out this week's episode. Next week's episode is just as good. I get to sit down with my good buddy, Rick Thorne, BMX legend, TV host, actor, musician, you can't get better than Rick Thorne. So that's next week on episode 19. So come back for that. Uh, Make sure that you are following us on all of the social media platforms. Once again, it is at TOTOT podcast. If you want to get in touch with me for some reason, you want to be a sponsor, you want to tell me an idea for a guest, whatever, it's TOTOT podcast at gmail.com. Or you can do the same thing, but you can do it 
audio version, you can call the TOTOT hotline. It's one seven six five three seven two eight eight one eight. So thank you guys so much. Um, next week's going to be a blast, just like this week was a blast. So make sure that you come back. Make sure that you tell your friends. Share us on all your social medias. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the iTunes store. It really does go a long way to help the show grow. And uh, I'm going to leave you guys with a really cool song by Goldfinger. It's a song called Superman. There's a lot of other songs I could play, but this is probably the song that I've heard the most by them. And that I just, when I hear this, it kind of gets me pumped. Uh, it was on the movie soundtrack to Kingpin with Bill Murray and Woody Harrelson. Uh, it was on the Tony Hawk pro skater game. I'm sure a lot of you guys have played that a million times and heard this song over and over and over again. When I hear this song, I actually see half pipes, like digital half pipes in my mind. So I'm going to leave you guys with Superman by Goldfinger. Come back next week. Tell a friend. Thank you very much. And I'm out, man. See you guys next time. Thanks.
what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob Podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.